During the Advent season of the Incarnation, we once again pause to reflect upon the greatest gift mankind has ever received, which is the hope of liberation from sin, death, and the tyranny of man. This sermon focuses upon the verbal promise of victory that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is the third sermon in a four-part series. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning, reading from Genesis in chapter 3, Genesis in chapter 3, the first 19 verses, the first 19 verses, 1 through 19. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Galatia, one verse only, verse 16 of chapter 3, identifying the seed of the woman as the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now in writing in his commentary, John Calvin said this, quote, The sum of the whole is this, that Christ surpasses Adam, the sin of one is overcome by the righteousness of the other, the curse of one is effaced by the grace of the other. From one death has proceeded, which is absorbed by the life which the other bestows. End quote. Now the connection between Adam and Christ is far more intimate than any of us could ever imagine. And yet, in order to fully understand and grasp that connection, we must allow the scriptures to speak very clearly to us. 
our conclusions, whatever our conclusions upon anything, our conclusions must always be based upon the evidence that God gives us as we compare Scripture with Scripture. That is the, the way we understand Scripture. When God revealed to Daniel that there would be a time when knowledge would increase, he was referring to the knowledge of the Savior and everything that was to be learned about the Savior. And so as knowledge increases, we learn more and more about the gospel of Christ. We learn more and more about the types and figures that the scriptures speak of. This sermon this morning is simply an examination of what I believe the scriptures teach about the connection between the first Adam and the last Adam. The connection between the man of the earth and the Lord from heaven. Now the evidence submitted here in this sermon may present more questions than answers. Yet I believe it is critical to ask those questions that as far as they are hard, yes, but we need to ask those hard questions if we are to understand more and more of God's word and the relationship between God and man. So this morning I ask for your patience and consideration in examining my findings as I was confronted with many questions, my own questions, looking only to scripture by comparing scripture with scripture to unearth the truth. Now, some hearing this might be confused, some delighted. Still others might be angry or indignant. Whatever the response, I do hope that the scriptures will reveal the truth. And so once again, I ask for your patience and for your sober consideration. Now, although the entire gospel was revealed in the first phases of Genesis chapter 1, remember, God anticipates the light anticipating the Christ, dividing the darkness from the light, anticipating good from evil. The earth was formed out of chaos until light came because the only time chaos can be dispersed and order can be reestablished is by the light. So we see even in the gospel of Genesis chapter 1, we have the Christ anticipated. It is not until Genesis chapter 3, however, where the verbal declaration of the gospel is more so revealed. Notice, what Moses is stating. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed, the seed of the serpent, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, as a result of Adam's transgression, God gives his promise of redemption immediately. He gives his promise of redemption, victory, and inheritance immediately by stating that he will crush the serpent's head. Now that crushing of the serpent's head is prominent in the entire scripture. We see this in the crushing of Abimelech's head when the woman casts a millstone from the tower crushing his head. We see this in the crushing of Sisera's head when Jael puts the spike through his head. And the many beheadings beginning with Goliath. It's always about the crushing of the head or the beheading of the head. And up until this point, Of Genesis chapter 3, things were very good. God even says, and things were very good. At this point, before the fall, there was no evil in the garden, neither was there any enmity between man and God, there was no death, no sin, no unrighteousness. There was, however, the possibility of evil. There was the possibility of enmity, which is why God tells Adam to subdue that which might destroy the garden. Remember, he said not only to take dominion, not only to take dominion, but to subdue. What was Adam to subdue? But his own propensity to sin. If Adam failed to subdue his own propensity to rebel, because he was only a created being out of the dust of the earth, if he failed to subdue his own propensity to rebel, which was a very real possibility, and that is why God says you need to subdue anything that would offend or destroy the garden, the result would result in death. The death of mankind, first spiritually, then ultimately physically. But not only that, if mankind rebelled, the entire earth would be corrupted as well, as we see from the thorns and the thistles coming up after the fall. The fall of mankind was not only inevitable, and this is where sometimes people might be bristling over this statement, but the fall of mankind was not only inevitable, it was God's decree that Adam would fall. Nothing happens outside of God's decree. To think that God would say, oh no, what just happened? Whoops, oh no, plan B. No, this was God's decree. And it was God's decree in order to pave the way 
for his glorification through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that God had purposely subjected the world to the fall in hope, in a better hope, for the better world without the possibility of sin, enmity, and death. Because as Adam, being a created being, he was always subject to a fall. So God is subjecting the world to the fall for greater glory. Paul tells the church at Rome this, in Romans 8, 19, and 20, for the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation, or the creature, was made subject to vanity. Notice, it was made subject to vanity by the will of God, by the decree of God, by reason of Him who had subjected the same, who is the Him, it's God, in hope. In hope of what? In hope of a more perfect world. Paul explains that the entire created order, including mankind, was subjected to the fall by the sovereign decree and purpose of God. This means that Adam had to fall. We could never say that, well, you know, if we were there, we wouldn't. No, no, no. Adam had to fall. He was subject to fall since it was God's purpose and will for him to fall. So that in order for God to be glorified in a greater way, Adam had to fall and he would be glorified in a greater way by giving himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would show such mercy, such forgiveness, and such love that he could ever have done if Adam just continued to be obedient. Now, while God may have shown his love for mankind by initially creating him, he planned to show a greater measure of love by forgiving him through the sacrifice of Christ. It was, however, not God that made Adam sin. God simply did not restrain Adam from doing what he would naturally do. Adam was created righteously. He was created in righteousness. But he was not perfect. He was able to sin. As the scriptures prove, he did sin. So he was able to sin. And now you have to ask the question, why? Again, as I try to explain why, let's ask it again in detail. Why did God decree such a terrible event? Once again, to subject the world in hope. The hope that Paul refers to is the hope of redemption by the Lord Jesus Christ. The redemption promised was to be far more magnificent, far more gloriously incredible, and far more wonderful in comparison to the evil and wickedness of the fallen world. And that subjugation of the world to sin was a righteous act because God only does things which are righteous. Because it would bring forth a far greater glory to God than if Adam never sinned. So God is bringing the world to this place so they can show the greatness of his love, the greatness of his mercy, the greatness of his forgiveness. John explains that everything that is, everything that happens, is for the magnification of God's glory and the revelation of eternal love and forgiveness through Christ the King. Notice what John says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Peter, explaining the providential orchestration of all things according to the will of God, tells his hearers this in Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28, For of a truth against Thy holy child Jesus, who Thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. It was all in God's hands. Everything is in God's hands. And yet he cannot be charged with unrighteousness. And so in order to magnify the glory of God, his love, his mercy, and his justice, he created the world and he subjected it to the fall. Now the remedy, however, was not to be glorious in and of itself, but by a humble, lowly method, which would confound even the wisest and strongest of men. The remedy would not be Jesus Christ riding in on a white horse. He would not be a political leader or an economic leader. He would come as a humble babe in the manger. So the remedy would not to be glorious in and of itself, but it would be through a lowly method, a humble method, 
And that would confound everyone, as Paul explains to the Corinthians. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching as we go forth to preach the incarnation, the babe in a feeding crib, declaring that which mankind sees as foolish by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jew requires a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jew a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence presence now to the philippians paul says this let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus who being in the form of god thought it not robbery to be equal with god but made himself of no reputation notice he humbled himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant as made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even the death of the cross he continues Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was the plan. This was the plan that would crush the head of the arrogant rebellious serpent who thought himself to be his God to know good and evil. Now let's consider for a moment. God's creation of man. Who was he? What was his makeup? What was his position? What was his mission? Well, who was Adam? Well, Adam was a created being, like and very much unlike the other creatures of the earth that God made. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Adam bore the image of God. He was taken from the dust of the ground. And this is a theme throughout scripture. This idea of dust. He was taken from the dust of the ground and unlike the other creatures, God breathes into him the breath of life and Adam, no longer made from the dust and simply remaining as dust, now made from the dust but giving by God, given a, a spirit, a living soul and God formed man, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the bread of life and man became a living soul. R.J. Rushton, he comments, he says, God is eternal and uncreated being, whereas man is finite and created, being totally the work of God and totally subject to the decrees of God. Both Isaiah and Paul tell us that the creature cannot resist the will of the creator, nor shall, and he quotes, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Dr. Moorcraft further explains, he says, Quote, for man to be created in the image of God means that he is like God in every respect in which a creature can be like God. It means in the wider sense that man, like God, is a personality. But man is always different from God, although created in his image, in that he is a creature. End quote. And so while Adam bore the image of God, he was not the express image of God. That title was reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Moorcraft agrees, he says, quote, the true nature of the image of God cannot be understood apart from the restoration of that image in Jesus Christ. Even Adam and Eve, in their unfallen condition, did not reveal the image of God as perfectly and clearly as Christ, because God cannot be known except in Christ, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. End quote. The Hebrew writer confirms this. He says in Hebrews 1, 1 and following, God, 
who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, notice verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Very distinct from Adam. Calvin explains it in this way. The true image is more clearly seen in Christ than in Adam, even in Adam's pristine state. Believers as well are only in the process of having their original image restored, which ultimately will be not only a restoration, but also an enhancement of that original image. In other words, they will be without sin. So why would Calvin say that the believer's final restoration will be an enhancement of Adam's original state. Simply because Adam was not perfect. Adam may have been righteous and originally without sin, but he was not perfect. Because while Adam could sin, the final state of the believer will be that they cannot sin. Just think about that. It's a better plan. And so Calvin rightly declares that the final state of the believer will be better than the original state of the federal head before his fall. So what was Adam's spiritual makeup? Well, as I said, he was without sin. He was righteous before God because he was created pure. Not perfect, mind you, but pure, without sin. Without sin, he was declared and could be then declared righteous before God. As long as he obeyed, he would remain in communion with God. Adam and Eve were not regenerate people. Think about Adam and Eve. They weren't regenerate. They didn't have to be regenerate. They didn't have to be born again. They were fine. They didn't need to be born again. They had no sin. And they did not yet face death. Although they were created from the dust, they had been given life by the Spirit. And as long as they obeyed, that spiritual life would remain intact. But once they rebelled, that spiritual life would die. The Hebrew says it this way, In dying ye shall die. Spiritually dying, you will finally, ultimately die physically. They were created originally not to die. Nor were they in need of redemption, at least not yet. There wasn't at this point, before the fall, any need for God to regenerate them because they had not yet died. Regeneration means to give them life again. They didn't need that yet. So while in the garden, they were equally poised to either obey or disobey. Their will was completely and freely their own. If you're going to talk about free will, that was the time it was most free. After the fall, we're in bondage to our own lusts. While obedient, Adam was able to clearly think God's thoughts after him. As the sinless image bearer, he was a perfect specimen, a perfect spectacle, filled with wisdom and understanding. And how do we know that? Because of Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, referring to Adam as the prince of Tyrus, remember, Adam was the prince of the world, just as Christ is the prince of peace. Adam was the first prince. He was the first king of the world. He was the federal head. So referring to Adam as the prince of Tyrus, Ezekiel describes him in this fashion while in the garden before his rebellion. Notice, in Ezekiel 28, verse 12 and following, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is talking about Adam. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the stardust, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes were prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Talking about Adam. But what was Adam's official position? First, Adam was created as the federal covenant head of the entire human race. He represented all of mankind. In fact, his name means mankind. He represented all of mankind, either for good or for evil. He was the responsible party before God for the human race. Secondly, he was the original high priest before God. And this is why he was arrayed, as Ezekiel states it, with these precious stones like Aaron the high priest, and as Christ would be in his glory. Now this is important to reflect upon. Very important. 
everything that Adam was and then was not, Christ had to become in order to restore that which Adam squandered. Let me say that again. Everything that Adam was and then was not, Christ had to become in order to restore that which Adam squandered. Think of it this way. The first Adam was originally perfect in beauty and wisdom. The last Adam was originally perfect in beauty and wisdom. The first Adam was the covenant federal head of mankind. The last Adam became the covenant federal head of the elect. The first Adam was the original high priest arrayed with the breastplate of precious stones. The last Adam would become the faithful high priest and he would wear the breastplate of precious stones. The first Adam would plunge the world into sin by sinning. The last Adam would take upon himself the sin of his people so as to redeem his people. The first Adam became sin by rebelling. The last Adam became sin by obedience. The first Adam went from sinlessness to sinfulness to destroy the human race. The last Adam went from sinlessness to sinfulness to redeem the human race. The first Adam was not cursed, but became a curse. The last Adam was not cursed, but became a curse. The first Adam desired to be as God. The last Adam was God. The first Adam went from glory to humiliation from being a human being bearing the image of God to a beast-like creature with a reptilian disposition. The last Adam went from humiliation to glory, from being a worm and no man to being highly exalted at the right hand of God the Father. The first Adam was commissioned to guard and cultivate the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel calls him the guardian cherub. The last Adam was also commissioned to guard and cultivate the garden, and he did so after the fall as the cherub with the flaming sword in Genesis 3.24. Notice what it says. And he drove out the man, so he, God, drove out the man, and he placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden cherub, or cherubim, and a flaming sword which turneth every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now note the word cherub in Genesis 3 and Ezekiel 28 are singular. And the same exact word in the Hebrew is a singular word. So he replaced a cherub, a guardian, to guard with a flaming sword. I believe that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So here again is the rub. Once again, everything that Adam was and then became as a rebellious man, Jesus had to give up what he was to become what he was not in order to make things right. And so when Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be lifted up as the serpent upon the pole, he was telling him that he had to become sin just like Adam so as to atone for his people. When Moses stood before the burning bush, you think about the oddity of these stories, these real historical accounts. When he stood before the burning bush and God told him, you'll go to Israel to tell them what I have told you, he wanted to have a number of signs and one of them was his rod. And he was told to throw down his rod to the ground, into the dirt, into the dust, throw it down. And when he did, it became a serpent. Ezekiel 4, 3, and he said, cast it to the ground. And he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. So now the question is, why a serpent? And what was the meaning behind throwing it to the ground? Now, since the scriptures identify Christ as the rod of God and as the serpent on the pole, we might conclude that Moses' rod being thrown to the ground speaks something of the gospel or something more particular of the humiliation of Christ, the rod of God being thrown to the ground, the Son of God being thrown to the earth in His incarnation. Because when Jesus became man, it was as if the rod of God was thrown to the ground in the dust of the earth in order to become sin for His people. In other words, the rod of God became the serpent. Paul explains it this way. In Ephesians 4.9, Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He talks to the Philippians in his letter and he says in chapter 2 again that he was humbled, being made in the fashion of a man. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, even as Adam. Notice, and being found in fashion as Adam. That's what that says, literally. He humbled himself became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And upon that cross, 
He tells Nicodemus that he is the serpent lifted up in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, representing the last Adam that had to become sin like the first Adam. And when Moses lifted up that serpent on the pole, Israel had to look to that serpent and then they were forgiven. Then they were healed of the fiery serpents that were biting them, the curse that was biting them. Moses is then told to take the serpent by the tail so that it may once again become the rod of God. And with it, Moses takes that rod and with the Red Sea, he parts the way for the liberation of God's people because that's what God does. After atoning for his people, he liberates them. And in this way, the tail becomes the head, even the federal head of the elect of God. And so Paul adds this in Ephesians 4.10, He that descended is also the same that ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now the hermeneutical evidence strongly suggests And this is my hypothesis, that Jesus had to become the serpent just like Adam became the serpent when he decided to rebel against God. Note how Ezekiel describes the sinless Adam being cast to the ground in the same way the serpent in Genesis 3 is cast to the ground. Now this is Ezekiel 28. Thou art the anointing cherub that covereth, or that protected, the garden. And I have set thee so, thou was upon the holy mountain of God. Eden was upon a mountain. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created. And that word perfect means righteous in the Hebrew. Till iniquity was found in thee, in Adam. Because Adam was thinking to rebel before he tempted Eve. Notice verse 16. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. That's what he did to Adam. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub. Now you think about that, O covering cherub. In the tabernacle of the wilderness, on all of the curtains, there was the embossed likeness of cherubs. Why? Because the tabernacle in the wilderness represented the body of Christ. We are the cherubim of God. That is why on the altar you have two cherubs with their wings touching one another over the mercy seat. Two is always a figure of witness. Who is the witness who witnesses the true atoning power of the sacrificial lamb? It is the church. Why wings? Because we mount up on eagle's wings. God is likened to an eagle with his wings protecting us. We are the cherubs of God. If the cherub can be anything else, why embossed on all the curtains of the tabernacle if not the body of Christ? Is God putting angels? Or is he concerned about his body, his bride? So I believe that the cherubim, there's a picture of the believers. In fact, God says that he rides upon the cherub. He rides upon the cherubim. In this way, I believe that we are likened to the cherubim and Christ was that guardian cherub. So the hermeneutical evidence strongly suggests that Jesus had to become just like Adam. Notice Ezekiel once again. Thine heart, speaking of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28, 17, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. And always, what did Solomon say? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Adam saw his beauty. So I can be like God. I can be like God. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou was corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. There it is. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Genesis 3 is almost identical in its language. Notice, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. He's casting Adam to the ground. He's casting the serpent to the ground. Before God breathed into Adam the breath of life, he was formed out of the dust, but now he is going back into the dust. David concurs with this fact that man is just dust as a result of the fall in Psalm 103. And again, God had to breathe the breath of life into Adam in order to take him out of the dust, making him a living soul. But once Adam sinned, he spiritually died. He was put back into the dust. When his soul died, he became as a dead man. He was put back into the dust. 
And as a result of his rebellion, he was thrust back into that dust from whence he came, crawling upon his belly in a humiliated state. I marvel at the story of Mary Magdalene when she's caught in adultery and Jesus is being tempted by the Pharisees to stone her. And he kneels upon the ground and he writes on the ground. And no one knows what he wrote. Maybe it was the name of the men who were having adulterous relations with her. I don't know. But he does write upon the ground because they were men of the earth. He's writing in to show them that they are just dust of the earth and they are not righteous men. And so after the fall, as a result of Adam's sin and the judgment against him, mankind is placed back into the dust, metaphorically. In fact, every time men stood to worship before God, they were to bow down into the dust of the ground in order to remember. That's why we bow. What do you think God always said? Put your face in the dust. Put yourself, when you repent, sackcloth and ashes. What about those ashes? It's the dust. When David was lamenting, he would throw dust upon himself. Because we are but dust. We are to remember what we are by nature whenever we worship, whenever we bow our heads before God into the dust. Hannah understood that. She also understood the need for the last Adam to raise us out of the dust into the newness of life. Notice in her prophecy, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 and following, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. She understood that we are but dust and she understood that God would take us from the dust that we were cast into and raise us up in the newness of life. I believe that the promise of victory over the serpent by crushing its head is referring to the vanquishing of rebellious mankind that seeks to be as God, those who are Adamic in nature without the regeneration. But this head crushing is a theme in all of the scriptures. It is referring to the crushing of the reprobate who are likened to serpents. Note how this idea presents itself, especially when Jesus and John deal with the Pharisees. Remember, the Bible has to define its own terms. Jesus constantly refers to them as serpents, as does John, connecting them to fallen Adam and the destruction that resulted from wanting to be as God. Notice Matthew 23, 33. He's talking to people. He's talking to men. Ye serpents... Ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he, John, said unto them, O generation of vipers. Notice, he's identifying them as Adamic, as earthly, as carnal, as serpents. Ye generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Matthew twelve thirty four. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Speaking of the wicked, Moses lays the original foundation for identifying rebellious man as serpents. Notice Deuteronomy 32, 31 and following. For their rock, speaking of the reprobate, for their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents. In the, in the King James it says dragons, but the word is serpents. And the cruel venom of asps. Another reference to serpents. Speaking of the wicked men that are carnal, earthly, and fallen in Adam, he says this, Job 20, 10 and following. His children shall seek to please the poor, and his hand shall restore their goods. His bones are full of the sin of his youth, which shall lie down with him in the dust. Though wickedness be sweet in his mouth, though he hide it under his tongue, remember, poison under the tongue, he hath swallowed down riches, and he shall vomit them up again. 
God shall cast them out of his belly. He shall suck the poison of asps. The viper's tongue shall slay him. Note what the psalmist does. The psalmist defines the wicked in like fashion. Psalm 58.3 and Psalm 140. The wicked are estranged from the womb, speaking lies. They go astray as soon as they be born. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth the ear. An adder is a snake. Psalm 140. Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man. Notice he's talking about evil men. Preserve me from the violent man. He's talking about violent men. Which imagine mischief in their hearts. Continually they are gathered together for war. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. He's referring to serpents as wicked men. He's referring to men as serpents. Notice the connection. Paul picks up on this idea also in Romans chapter 3. As is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit, just like Adam. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now let's consider for a minute the transition from the old to the new. The scripture maintains that when the Lord Jesus came, not when he's coming, but when he came at the incarnation, he made all things new. We have already established that the kingdom of the New Testament is identified as the new heaven and the new earth from Isaiah. Jesus, notice, Jesus is the new man, not the old man, not the old Adam. Likewise, his people, they are new creatures by the new birth. They have put away the old Adam. They are no longer serpents and scorpions. They are righteous before God through the salvation that's given to them in Christ and by his blood. So no longer are they the old man, nor are they slaves of the old Adamic nature. The gospel is taken from old wineskins and placed in new. Notice, old and new, the dichotomy. It's gone from the old to the new. Even the New Testament and the Old Testament are opposites. This is the intent of Moses' remarks concerning the new thing that God was going to make. Notice in Numbers chapter 16, a prophecy concerning the new thing that God is going to make. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open up her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Notice, the earth is swallowing them up. They're being cast into the ground. Furthermore, we know Christ is the faithful witness. He's opposite of Adam, who's the lying Adam. Which brings me to another point. If indeed, and I know this raises a whole lot of other questions, which are for another time. But if indeed Adam is the serpent, and the narrative seems pretty clear, that there's only two people in that garden. So if indeed Adam is the serpent, and I stress, if indeed he is the serpent, he is then the one identified as the great red serpent or the great red dragon, the old serpent, the slanderous deceiver, the devil and the adversary of Revelation chapter 12. Notice Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was cast out. Out of where? Out of the garden. That old serpent called the deceiver, the slanderer. The word devil simply means slanderer. And the adversary, Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth or into the dust. And his messengers or his followers were cast out with him. So I believe that Jesus is referring to Adam here when he points him out as the slandering father of the rebellious Pharisees. Notice what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 8. Beginning in verse 44. Ye are of your father the slanderer, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, a lot of people say, well, that must be Satan. Well, wait a minute now. The seed of the serpent, does the serpent have a seed? Or does Adam have a seed? The words of the apostle refers to rebellious man 
which connects David's reference to mankind as natural liars. The poison of asps is under their lips, and the wicked go astray speaking lies. Let's consider once again the crushing of the serpent's head, which is a glorious analogy, a great theme in Scripture. When the Bible refers to the head, it refers to the source of one's strength. This is why Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm of the New Testament. Why is that so? Because it speaks of the crushing of heads. Psalm 110, verse 5. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound, the word is crush, the heads over many countries. That's the theme. Back to Genesis. The promise of the Redeemer is a comprehensive promise of totality. Total victory by a total victory given by Christ. It's a divine promise to cut off the source of apostate man's power, influence, and dominion. The battle is between God and man. The battle is between God and rebellious man. Micah gives us a preview. Notice what he says in Micah seven sixteen and following. The nations shall see and be confounded at their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. Notice the deaf adder. The deaf adder that stopped it off his ears. They can't hear. And that's why Jesus, with all of his miracles, what did he do? He healed the guy who couldn't hear. So he could hear the gospel. Because naturally we cannot hear the gospel unless God intervenes. Notice the next verse. Verse 17. Speaking of the wicked people of the nations. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God, just like Adam was afraid after he sinned, and shall fear because of thee. Notice what Jesus told the apostles, and he tells us that today. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. Who are the serpents and scorpions? The enemy. Who's the enemy of God? Rebellious mankind. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notice Mark 16. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents. And if they drink of any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. In Acts 28, 4 and 5. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beasts hang upon his hand, upon Paul's hand. They said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he had escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffered not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. That's what we do to our reprobate nature, our Adamic nature, when it finally takes hold of us to grant to us a poisonous venom. We shake it off by mortification. Once again, the promise of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. See, God uses the word enmity as the dividing point between the serpent and the woman. This too is significant. And between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Enmity is used very carefully in Romans chapter 8 to identify carnal man's hatred against God. It is defined as an attribute of the carnal mind, the natural, Adamic, unregenerate man. Notice what he says, Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. When Adam even thought about sinning, it was as if he already sinned. I believe Adam was the original tempter, tempting Eve to eat. What happened when she ate? Nothing. Nothing happened. Why? Because she wasn't that federal head. But when he ate, the wrath of God came crashing down. Secondly, the declaration that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman has a twofold meaning if we see the serpent as Adam. Men and women are by nature at odds. I know you married folks, you know that. By nature, we're at odds. You know, I, 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 make, the, I make the quip when some, one of the brethren says, you know, I, I disagree with you, as if to say we should agree on everything. And I ask them, which is fine, disagreement is fine. But I asked him, I said, do you agree with every single thing your wife says? Do you agree with every single thing, every single decision that your husband gives? The answer is no. It's impossible. 
And when we disagree, we pray about it, we go to the scriptures, we try to reconcile. But disagreement among even married couples who are one, it happens. So men and women are by nature at odds. Some may just tolerate each other, but they can only live righteously in harmony with one another if they are given the newness of life. We see enmity between Adam and Eve after the fall when Adam seeks to condemn Eve by blaming her. And that's another problem. We keep blaming things. The devil made me do it. My mother made me do it. Jodie Foster talked to me in my dream. She made me do it. And I'm going to do this and that. No, no. The Apostle James is very clear. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God because... God tempts no man, but let every man say, let every man say that when he is tempted, he is tempted by his own lusts and enticed. We're our own tempter because we still have Adam. The second implication is those that are apostate, reprobate, wicked men and nations will always be at enmity with the woman who symbolized the church of Jesus Christ. Then, thirdly, God declares that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I believe that this refers to the seed of natural Adam, which comes against the seed of the woman, the incarnate Christ of God, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. This is what I believe the psalmist is referring to in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their course. That's enmity. Number four, God then assures Adam and Eve, who are representations of the entire human race, that Christ will destroy all the workers of iniquity, all those serpents, he's going to crush the head of all the serpents, who desire to be his God by crushing their heads. This is the victory our Lord has promised. And here is the rub. For all those still waiting for Jesus to reign as the victorious king, or for those waiting for the rapture in order for Christ to finally crush the head of his adversaries. Christ's victory is a victory which has been already won as a result of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is now crushing the heads systematically of all of those in rebellious against him. One more cautionary final note. Those that profess the Lord Jesus and yet fail to obey his commandments and trust in his person, they will be crushed as the serpent and cast to the dust of destruction. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses tells Israel, that if they obey, they will be blessed. But if they rebel, they will be crushed into the dust of the earth. Notice, Deuteronomy 28, beginning at 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Curses shall be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. And there shall be no might in thine hand. The fruit of thy land and all thy labor shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed, and notice the last phrase, and crushed always. The crushing of the head of the reprobate. But for those that trust in him, who are laboring by the Spirit of God to mortify their sin, to be repentant over their sin, and to look to Christ for the only hope of their salvation, to them, blessedness and a glorious inheritance And so as we contemplate the Incarnation each and every year, we are reassured of such a victory which comes to us in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and of course through the forgiveness of sin by the mercy of God. God be praised for such an unspeakable gift. Amen.